0: And our sermon text as we're continuing our march through Matthew's gospel in the series we call All Hail the King, Considering King Jesus as Matthew presents us, is in Matthew 18. And I will say that, uh, just kind of by way of intro, that this text is one of those texts that... um, we don't always like to talk about in the church. It deals with something called church discipline. And we hear that word discipline and just kind of cringe a little bit. Because discipline, I mean, who likes it? Uh, it just it sounds painful and uncomfortable. Um, we think of it, you know, in terms of, you know, raising our children or even in disciplining ourselves as we're trying to lose weight or work out and get stronger or go on a diet. But discipline is a good thing. It's actually a loving thing, and I think we'll see that in our text this morning, at least that is my hope and prayer, that the Father's loving hand through discipline, through his church is a good thing for us because it strengthens our faith. So bear with me now as we consider what God has to say. Let us listen now to the word of God, Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15 through 20. We read this, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you and that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. This is the word of the Lord. Conflict is inevitable. We don't like it, so we don't enjoy when it happens, but it happens. It happens on a larger societal or community-based scale, and it also happens on a very personal, interpersonal level. Often it is those interpersonal conflicts that, as they accumulate, leads to the larger and broader conflict we see in community. And no wonder, then, that as Jesus addresses this new community of his kingdom, that he touches upon this idea of conflict and how conflict should be resolved in a way that is consistent with his gospel of grace. This discourse in Matthew 18 that we are looking at is all about the personal relationships that God's people have with one another. And of course, last week we saw that Jesus told us how a person is great in the kingdom is by becoming humble, by being like little children, that uh, this humility is reflected within a heart of contrition towards God, a brokenness that depends upon his forgiving mercy. And it is from that heart, that heart of repentance, that we see how we are to treat others. And so our text this morning is all about how we treat those within the church, within the covenant community of God's people who have actually sinned against us in some way. Now, we would hope that conflict in the kingdom of Christ would not exist, and one day it will not. But we know that while we enjoy the, the real presence of Christ and we know that his kingdom is here it is not yet complete it is a spiritual reality but not yet consummated in this world and so we wait for the return of our king that final victory over sin and death when Jesus comes again for his people and we are united to him for all eternity and sin and death are no more we will be free from conflict forever that sounds wonderful But until that day, there's still sin in this world. And consequently, there's still conflict because sin leads to conflicts. But that doesn't mean that Jesus leaves his disciples without any sense of resolving conflict within his kingdom, of any means of reconciling relationships and of restoring those who wander as sheep away from the fold of God's people. And so our text this morning is all about how believers in the church experience real restoration and reconciliation with one another in the kingdom of Christ. And just like as we've been seeing all through Matthew's gospel, Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is not like the kingdom of this world. And so the very first thing we see when it comes to conflict revolution, uh, uh, restoration in his kingdom is that it is intentional rather than being ignored or inflamed. You see, two things happen in the world when someone is offended or sinned against by another person. They either react in a way that is, that is full of bitterness and anger and leads to vengeance, or... They ignore the situation completely and they try to move on with their lives, but they never really do. And so it adds up and it builds and bitterness grows. Both those responses are not helpful. In fact, they bring further hurt, disunity, and trouble. And an inflammatory reaction of anger and bitterness only throws more wood on the fire. It creates further division and, and distrust between Friends, And it never leads to reconciliation. Families and friendships have been destroyed by that kind of inflamed response. And no wonder that God has much to tell us about the danger and destructive power of anger. In Psalm thirty seven, eight, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Proverbs fourteen twenty-nine Whoever is slow to anger and has great understanding uh, has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs fifteen and one. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That is James 1, 19 and 20. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And that's only a small sampling of what God has to say regarding to responding to conflict, responding to people who sin against us in anger. I mean, clearly he's prescribed a way of responding to others who sin that does not turn to angry vengeance. Vengeance. And of course, the other way, as we noted, that people deal with, with conflict is they try to ignore it. They try to bury it. But that just leads to bitterness growing up in the heart because you never truly forget what someone has done against you. Now, the Bible does teach us wisdom in this matter because there are times where it is good to forgive and forget a matter. Proverbs 19, 11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. But there are also times that we have to deal with the offense against us, especially if it continues to wound our soul and hurt us. Jesus teaches us here that we are to be intentional with our brothers and sisters when it comes to conflict resolution. We aren't to respond in anger, but neither should we bury that offense, especially if the offense is a sin that is hurting that very person who commits it. You see, Jesus gives his disciples an imperative in verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Jesus says, if your brother or your sister... So he's speaking particularly, notice this, of those within the community of faith, within his kingdom, within the church. He says, if they sin against you, go straight to them. Now, this is very contrary to what most people want to do, because sometimes, like we've noted, it's it's, it's easier to just ignore the problem. I mean, most of us don't like confrontation, so we do what we can to avoid it. But sometimes that confrontation is necessary, which is why Jesus says what he says here, go to them. It's necessary when we have been personally sinned against in some manner, when someone hurts us through their words and their actions in such a way that it is definitely a sin and it continues to bother us and trouble us. And here's why it's necessary then to confront them. Because Jesus tells us here, it is showing the love of the Father to the one who is wandering in sin. You see, it's applying the grace of the gospel in a very personal, real-life situation. The imperative of Christ comes right on the heels of that little parable that we saw last week about the shepherd and the sheep If you remember the man who had a hundred sheep, one of them wanders astray It is they are going off into sin. And what does the shepherd, what does the father do? He pursues that one sheep lovingly till he finds him, rejoicing greatly when he does and restores him again to the sheepfold. And Christ is explaining this is how the father in heaven pursues those who have wandered from him when it is his will to do so that they do not perish in the wilds of their own sinfulness. And the father's love for wandering sheep is so great that he was willing to send his own son to rescue those wandering sheep to give his life as a ransom for their sin. And immediately after Jesus explains that and shows this is the father's loving grace and seeking those who wander, he says, if someone sins against you, go to them. Pursue after them. In other words, be the means that the Father uses to bring the erring one back into the fold. Don't drive them away in anger and hatred. And don't ignore the fact that they've actually sinned. That's dangerous. See the danger and seek to warn them and care for their very soul by going after them as the Father pursued your wandering soul. This is exactly what we see God doing at the very moment sin first entered in the world. Going back to Adam and Eve in the garden, they disobey God. They break his law that was given to them at that time. In their pride, they tried to become like God, which is an act of cosmic rebellion. And what does God do? Does he respond in immediate anger? No, he does not. But nor does he ignore the sin, nor does he just kind of push it aside. He could not do that. If he did, he wouldn't be God. After all, he is holy and pure and undefiled. Instead, he immediately goes and he confronts them. And he tells them exactly what they did. He tells them their fault. He lays out the evidence of the case against them. Why? Because he didn't want to lose them. He wants to restore his creation back to himself. It was intentional. It was purposed, a purposed mission to save those wanderers. And it is with that same intentionality that drove the Father to redeem his people that we are called to resolve the conflicts in our life and seek restoration with those who have sinned against us in the kingdom of Christ. When we do that, we are walking in the footsteps of our Lord. And Jesus says that the goal of this, of going to your brother or sister, is not to despise them or hurt them or to get vengeance in any way. Rather, it's to gain them. Literally, to win them back to a good relationship once again. We seek them so that, in a sense, we might save them. We seek them with the same concern and care that God showed in bringing us back into fellowship with Him. So, Right away, we see that the conflict resolution in the kingdom of heaven is far different than in this world. It is intentional rather than inflamed and ignoring of the problem. Secondly, we see here in this text that it is ordered rather than chaotic. I mean, gospel-directed, grace-driven conflict resolution isn't rash and disorganized in any way it's well-ordered systematic patient and purposed and too often when a person is wronged by another there's this tendency to immediately rush to try to fix the problem without taking the time to think through the situation of how to communicate what has happened or what the goal even is in confronting the person And Christ spells out here a very well-ordered, well-structured process with a very definite goal. That goal, as we've observed, is to win back the erring brother, its restoration. And the fact that Jesus lays out such an ordered process for the covenant community of God's people reflects the very order that is within God himself. I mean, everything God does is well-ordered. He is, after all, a God of good order. Consider creation, and you can talk to any scientist. I know some of you are scientists, some of you are students who are studying science, and you see the detailed work of a God of order in everything. You see his structure and his precision that he has worked into this world. And from the way that proteins in the body work together in such harmony to keep us alive, to the very movement of the stars and the planets and the asteroids and the comets, uh, in this perfectly synchronized harmony across the vastness of space, we see God has designed things in good order. And we, when we do find disorder in the world, it's interesting that that disorder always comes, that chaos always comes as a result of sin. Little wonder then, when we try to resolve conflicts and seek restoration through our own human wisdom, through our own human efforts outside of the gospel, we end up making a bigger mess of the problem. And so let's look at this order that Jesus lays out. It's, it's easy to chart, actually. You can draw this in your mind through a little flow chart There are basically three steps, and as we observed, one goal, to to gain your brother or sister, to see them restored and reconciled. So the first step is this. Jesus says, go to that person privately and personally. That's the first step. Notice he doesn't say, go and consult with eight other people first to see, well, how should I handle this? No, he says, keep it private. Don't lay their sin out in a gossip session before others or through a, a pseudo prayer request. I pr- just, would you pray for so-and-so? They, they're really struggling in the sin that, and they did this to me. Don't do that. He says, no, go to them privately. Don't post a passive-aggressive complaint on social media. Confront them in person and in private. You don't drag dirty laundry out into the open. You don't seek to shame them publicly. And again, this is so different than the way we, in our sinfulness, are wired to try to react when people wrong us. We want to expose the shame. We want to show what they have done. I mean, people like to make situations known publicly as a means of of seeking vengeance. But going to them privately... It takes that away. It remo- removes the ability to gossip and slander them before others. It guards the peace and the purity of the church as a whole. And so following the process, Jesus says, if the offending party listens, that is, if they receive what you're saying, and they're broken and are saying, you know, I'm sorry, I did not understand that I had sinned against you in this way. Please forgive me. And they seek reconciliation You have won your brother. And at that point, case closed. The matter is settled. It's done. The restoration has taken place. But, if you see this as a chart, there's another arrow coming out. If they don't listen, then what? Well, then you come to step two. And this one points to what happens if the person doesn't respond positively. If they don't listen, Jesus says, then you are to take, verse 16, one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the matter isn't settled if the offender doesn't listen. And he says, take two or three others. Instead of just walking away when they don't listen, keep pursuing them. Move on to step two, because again, you are seeking someone who has sinned against you. Notice again, though, that Jesus doesn't say, just bring anybody along the second time. He, he, he clarifies it. He says they are to be two or three witnesses. Now, witnesses, first of all, they must have some knowledge of, of the sin in question. They are, after all, witnesses. They have to be a reliable testimony. So you don't just get anybody with no knowledge of the situation. They aren't people you gossip to. They are people who have seen the sin, committed in, in some sense. Remember, the sin in question here, it's, it's a private sin. Jesus is is guarding the privacy of the situation with this process. Now, public sin in the Bible does demand a public response. We see that in Galatians 6. Uh, Paul says, if Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore. Again, there's that idea of winning back. Restore in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch of yourselves, lest you too be tempted. The idea there is a a public sin. Someone has been caught in it. And again, the goal is restoration in gentleness. But here, Jesus is addressing this private sin. And so he's still keeping it small. He says, just get one or two others who actually witnesses, who actually understand what has happened here. And then if the offender listens, what happens? Well, it goes back to, you have gained your brother. Restoration is complete. The matter is settled. But if they don't listen to step two, then what do you do? You move on to the third step. You take the case or the matter to the church. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, when we read that, we might be inclined to think, well, you know, there's a little bit of contradiction here because we see Jesus is trying to keep this a private matter, a private sin. Why does the third step involve bringing it to the church? Well, to answer that, we have to remember what is at stake here and what this is all leading to. Jesus starts out in Matthew 18 by telling us that we, if we want to even enter the kingdom, we have to have that humility, that heart of repentance. In other words, a heart of repentance is willing to repent, to acknowledge that I have sinned against God and sinned against another person. And if a person within the community of Christ keeps refusing to repent and is not willing to acknowledge that they have sinned against another person, they are displaying the opposite of that humility. They are displaying an unrepentant pride. In pride, if I refuse to acknowledge that I have sinned against another, that is a dangerous thing. I mean, the heart of unrepentance may mean that I am indeed outside of God's covenant blessings, that I am in reality an unbeliever, that I am in danger of God's holy judgment and wrath. And so I need the church to come to me and warn me so that I might be restored to the church as God's authority on earth through her officers, her worship, through the ministry of word and sacrament is the means uh, by which either God's blessings of his grace are communicated or that the curse of sin is made evident to a person. In other words, going to the church is this last desperate measure to win this person, not to hurt them, it's truly seeking after, pursuing after the wandering, unrepentant sheep. And if the offender does repent after being confronted by the authority of the church, which, just as a footnote, uh, in Presbyterian polity, that is typically carried out through the elected elders of the congregation, then the restoration is complete. The brother or the sister has been one, reconciliation is the result case closed. But if they do not repent, if they continue in stubborn resistance and unrepentance, the final step, Jesus says, is you consider them as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, a Gentile was the word that the uh, Jewish people used to describe those who were outside of God's covenant. And tax collectors, because they worked for Rome, were considered by society to be betrayers of the covenant people of God. And thus the point is, is this, if this person, after being brought before the church and said, hey, this is sin, you've sinned against this brother or sister... They're to be considered as one who is an outsider if they still will not listen. Now, that doesn't mean that they are shunned. It does not mean that. And so often where church discipline has failed is where churches have treated people so poorly and hurt them by shunning them. In fact, it means the exact opposite. What is the goal here, remember, to gain the brother? And how is the church to treat unbelievers that come to them? Welcome them, receive them, and show them the gospel of grace. Show them how they can be restored back to God. They're supposed to proclaim the gospel to them. They're supposed to show mercy and declare truth and to seek to bring them into the kingdom, not drive them further away. In fact, the church has been granted the authority of Christ to do this very thing. He says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we've seen this language before back in Matthew 16 when Jesus teaches us how he will build his church. And there he explains that the keys of the kingdom, which represent authority, are given to the church to bind and to loose based on a person's confession of who Christ is. And here, when it comes to resolving sinful conflicts, that is also the idea. I mean, the gospel is very clear. It's that you are more sinful than you could ever imagine, but there is more mercy in Christ than you could also ever imagine. And that you deserve judgment for that sin, but God in his mercy sent Christ to bear that judgment for his people. So if you do humble yourself and rest upon him in faith, you will be redeemed and brought into the kingdom of God forever. And so in the context of our passage this morning, Jesus is saying you as the church have the authority to proclaim that gospel through God's means of grace, through word and sacrament. You have the authority to loose or untie a person that is bound in sin by declaring to them, yes, you are forgiven because you have come in humble repentance to the foot of Christ's cross. But at the same time, If a person refuses to repent and says, no, I'm not that bad. I really haven't sinned. The church can warn them that, hey, you are in danger. You are outside of God's covenant mercy. Don't do that. Don't look into the heart of God's wrath yourself. But come, come to the cross and know his forgiveness. Which brings us to the final thing we see here regarding conflict resolution in Christ's kingdom. Not only is it well-ordered instead of chaotic, we see that God's people can experience true reconciliation with with one another because God's people are truly reconciled back to him through Christ. You see, the fact that we are reconciled to God through Christ is what makes it possible for us to be reconciled to one another when we sin against each other. And Jesus gives us a couple of promises in this text to, to close out his teaching on conflict in the kingdom. And they both are, re, are rooted in the reality that we as believers, we have already experienced the impossible, the greatest of all reconciliations for we are reconciled back to. To God, we are restored to the re, re, right relationship with Him. And because of that, if that is possible, we know that God in His grace can restore our human relationships as well. You see, your offense against God as a sinner, your rebellion against Him, it was an infinite respo- uh, offense because He is an infinite being. And as such, by human standards, it would be impossible to close that gap that has opened between us and God. But that is exactly what the cross of Christ did. It made what was impossible, what is impossible for man, but not impossible for God, a reality. And so through Christ, we are reconciled back to God. For that reason, we know we can be reconciled to our erring brother or sister who has sinned against us. so there are these two promises that reminded us of that. The first is the promise of prayer. Jesus says in verse 19, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, he's talking about prayer, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So the idea here is, is going to God in prayer to work his will in a given situation, particularly in this context, in this conflict that exists. And Jesus doesn't mean here, though, that whatever we ask God in prayer is guaranteed to be done. Name it, claim it, just if you have enough faith, it's going to happen. Like God is some sort of cosmic vending machine that gives us exactly what our hearts fancy. That's not what he's saying. Now, in the overall context, he has this idea, again, in mind of conflict, of of church discipline. And he's saying that the church should agree to unite in prayer for Whoever is erring and refusing to repent. Why? So that they might be restored and reconciled back to God and back to their brethren in Christ. Ask it in the name of the Father. Pray for this person. Again, you see this idea of pursuing after them in love. I mean, prayer is a powerful reminder, though, that God has pursued after us in love. Because the very reason that our prayers reach Heaven's ears is because Christ has opened the way by reconciling us back to God. The second promise that he gives here is the promise of Christ's presence. He reminds us that he is indeed with us. Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, uh, like the prior promise regarding prayer, this one is many times pulled out of of context and misunderstood it 's actually appearing in the context of this idea of or of conflict resolution and, and church discipline. But Christians like to use this very verse to imply that well, if two and people gather together in a park that 's where the church is well, yeah, I, I see where they 're saying with that, but Uh, The church is more than just Christ's presence with his people. It's not less than that, but it's actually more than that. It is is also uh, the worship of the Lord through word and sacrament, and it is uh, the gathered people of God. It is also the right rule and order that exists within the covenant community. And that is exactly what is in view in our text this morning. Jesus wants his disciples to know that in matters of seeking reconciliation and restoration through this difficult process that he's laid out here, that he is indeed with them in all of it. And so when the church gathers and it declares a judgment based upon a gospel that a person is indeed forgiven because they have repented and come before Christ, Jesus says, that is made through my authority, the authority of heaven. But on the flip side, when the church warns a person who continues to resist the call to come to Christ and the church says, hey, You are in danger. You are in danger of the judgment of God. Jesus says, I'm also with you in that judgment as well. But even that hard truth has in mind that great purpose of restoration, of winning back the brother or sister. It's all guided by what we saw back in verse 15 to gain the brother. It's all a rescue mission, a rescue mission that pursues and seeks the wandering ones just as the father seeks his wandering sheep. And so Jesus is calling us as his church here to that same mission for which he came to earth to restore the most hardened, the most hurting sinners back to the love of our heavenly father. And so let us heed his call. Let us Seek the wandering ones. Let us restore the fallen. Let us build a community by being reconciled one to another as we enjoy the reconciliation that is ours with God through the gospel of Christ. You know, the world, it desperately needs that. It needs God's people to seek true reconciliation when they wrong each other because the world gets it Wrong, so many times they need to see that what jesus offers is better because conflict happens but so does reconciliation because christ has reconciled us back to god let us pray father in heaven we are thankful that you do open the way so that we might know you that we might be restored to a right relationship with our father in heaven that through simple faith and repentance, we know the joys of salvation, of being called a child of God, a citizen of your kingdom. Father, I pray that you would help us to show that love and that mercy to those who are wandering, that we would demonstrate patience and graciousness and kindness, that we would not be angry, that we would not uh, let bitterness grow up in our hearts but it would always seek to build a true relationship based upon the gospel of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.